starting at verse 1 of chapter 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was, was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Thanks, Nigel, very much. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we pray that your spirit, who inspired those words to be written by Matthew, would help us to understand them and then rightly apply them to our lives as a church and individuals, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I, I do have a PowerPoint. Uh, Jenny has done one, as she usually does for me, but uh, it's being a bit dodgy, isn't it? I think it would be more distracting if it was flashing on and off, so it'll just be the words and not the pictures and so on this morning. Now, to be honest with you, I cannot stand them. All those stupid, petty rules and regulations they make up. And the latest one is this. To make sure you don't break the speed limit on the motorway, they've made up a rule that actually, if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to drive on a motorway at 60 miles an hour. And then they condemn you if you break it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, what happens is, if you overtake them on the M23, if you overtake them going at 65, as you pass them, they look over you to you and they sneer and they shake their head and they wag their finger and they're looking all sorts of smug behind their steering wheel. And the thing is, they're so respected. Everyone bows and scrapes to them, these Pharisees. And yet, you know something? It might seem extraordinary, I find it extraordinary, but now we're actually finding ourselves working together. Us and them. How can you believe it? I just don't, this is just, this is weird. I mean, for a while anyway, we'll do that. Then we'll get back to hating each other uh, in a little while. Um, But why are we working together? Well, it's because if there's anyone worse than a Pharisee, it's that carpenter from Nazareth that man called Jesus. And we've got to get rid of him. In fact, the thing is, you see, he is wrecking our lives. And what we have to do is we've got to turn people against him. And the best way to do that is actually if we can work together. So for a little while, we're going to team up with the Pharisees and we're going to get rid of this Jesus character for good. 
me, a Sadducee, working with the Pharisees. Extraordinary, but that's what we're doing. Men who hold opposing opinions will agree on disliking the gospel and will work together to oppose its progress. So wrote the Victorian Bishop of Liverpool, J.C. Ryle. Um, I've got a bit of a soft spot for J.C. Ryle because he died at the end of our garden. No, he really did. When we lived in Lowestoft, uh, J.C. Ryle had lived in one of those houses at the end of our garden there. He was a bishop of Liverpool, he retired to Lowestoft, and there he, re- he, he uh, retired, and there he died in one of the houses at the end of our garden. So it is true that J.C. Ryle died at the end of our garden. But the point is this, as we turn to Matthew chapter 16, it's page 983, uh, do uh, open it again if uh, you've closed your Bibles. Um, You look at verse 1 there. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. You see, they're teaming up in opposition to Jesus. They're poles apart. They just hate each other. Now, the Pharisees were the kind of, they were the religious elite. They were the fundamentalists and the the literalists of their day. Um, They were legalists saying, you have to keep the law of God. uh, And it was so important you did so that they would hedge the law of God around with their own laws, which were even stricter, to make sure that you didn't uh, break the law of God. Hence the speed limits thing. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the liberals of their day. They were the intellectuals. They were the skeptics. They're the people who didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection even. That's why they're, as they say, sad, you see. And they formed an unholy alliance to test Jesus in verse 1 there. And it was not a test like, well, we're going to do a test to see how good you are. They were giving him a test because they wanted Jesus to fail. That was the aim of it. Their test intends to fail Jesus. Their test is intended to catch him out. Their test is intended to discredit him. Their test is intended to get Jesus scoring nil point. And that's their background. That's the background of the story here. But uh, so far, this is a bit like test match special. You know, the cricket commentary. And Henry Blofeld commenting on the red bus on the Harleford Road. Completely not the main point. Actually, when you're listening to a match special, you really want to know what's going on in the middle, don't you? And here, we really want to know what's going on in the middle as well. And when you read the Gospels, you really want to know what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying, and what Jesus is teaching us. That's what's in the middle. So this actually uh, is a question about what's going on in Matthew 16, and the focus really isn't on the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're the wallpaper. Here, we need to see uh, the question. And the question is this. What does Jesus want? What does Jesus want? And the answer to that question from this passage is this. Jesus wants our faith. He doesn't want our admiration so much. He not, doesn't want our fascination. Uh, he actually wants our faith. That is our trust in him. That's what Jesus wants. So when you look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, very respected, very religious, very upright members of society, but there's no faith in Jesus at all. Zilch. 
And then Jesus looks at them and he wants them to put their faith in him. And of course, at the moment, they're just failing miserably. And then Jesus looks at his own disciples. And you look at the end of verse 8 there. Uh, and he says, uh, he says to them, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? And so on. And then he goes on and says that you're people of little faith. You have little faith in verse 8. You have little faith. And when Jesus is encouraging them to, put their, to be growing in their faith, to be building their faith more holy in him. And this passage, underneath all the stuff that's going on with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, this passage is about people like you and me putting our faith in Jesus. That's what he wants for all of us. So it brings a question, doesn't it? Have you done that? Are you doing it today? Will you be doing it this week? Putting your faith in Jesus. Will you daily put your hand in his? Put your trust in him? So there are four main points. Um, um, I haven't actually got to the back of the service order. Here we are. It's reasonable is the first one. uh, And that's verses 1 to 4. It's a reasonable thing to do. Now, when I was a small boy, as I'm sure as many of you did when you were little, your parents taught you this thing uh, about the weather forecast. Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's... There we are. And uh, uh, you see, it wasn't just then. That's something that's at least 2,000 years old, isn't it? Because we see it here in the version of it in verses 2 and 3. And when the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to Jesus in verse 1, they want a sign. And when they say, we want a sign from heaven, what they're saying is, Jesus, we want a sign like you rolling back the heavens big time and revealing yourself to us so there's no doubt about who you are. And Jesus says to them, you know, really, you don't know what you're asking for because one day this world will have that sign and the heavens will be rolled back. And everyone who's ever lived will see who I am. But then it will be too late. Because when Jesus returns to this world on Apocalypse Day, on Judgment Day, if you're not a Christian, it will then be too late to change your mind. So be careful when you ask for a sign. Because you might be saying, Jesus, I want you to roll back the heavens and to return and to be my judge. So these Pharisees and these Sadducees are actually asking Jesus to come and judge them. One day he will. And Jesus says, you want a sign? You want a sign? Well, you're not going to get that one big sign you're looking for because that's going to be too big, too much for you to cope with. And I'm kinder than that. But I want to and I will give you an indisputable sign before that. It is a sign of Jonah. Now, what on earth do we mean by the sign of Jonah? What did Jesus mean by the sign of Jonah? Uh, you know, you go back in the Old Testament, Jonah's a, a Sunday school story, isn't it? About a guy who was in a storm and he got thrown out of a boat and then a big fish swallowed him and he was inside the fish for three days and then it spewed him up on the beach in Spain or somewhere. And, uh, uh, and, and there he was. So it was like he died. And it was like he came back again. He was raised from the dead. That is the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah in Jesus' life is, of course, Jesus' own death and resurrection. His death on Good Friday, his resurrection on Easter Sunday morning. You want a sign? You want to know if Jesus is real? 
You want to know if Jesus was who he said he was? You want to understand Christianity? You want to know the gospel, how it works out, and what it means for you? Well, the answer to all those is the sign of Jonah. It's Jesus' cross and his resurrection. It's Jesus' death for you and his coming back from death to be the Lord of all eternity. Easter weekends is our sign. And it happens, and it's been, it's been verified. It's true. So faith is not just a, an unseeing leap in the dark. We have a sign that is ultimately reliable. It's called Easter. The Easter weekends. Jesus' death and his resurrection for us. The uh, Cambridge and Oxford academic, um, C.S. Lewis, took a long time to become a Christian. He fought it, but he ended up by admitting that God was God on top of a bus driving through Oxford. And then uh, he wrote, later on in his life, he wrote this, Faith is the act of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Someone else called Elton Trueblood said this, Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. And Jesus wants our faith. And faith is something that's reasonable. It is sensible. It's all right. It's not being stupid. It's not kind of jumping off, uh, you know, um, jumping off a diving board only to look down and to see that the, uh, the swimming pool is empty or whatever. No, it's a sensible, it's a reasonable thing uh, to do and to look at um, because there's great sign that we have on that first Easter weekend. And you see, we can say on that basis, because Jesus died for me, because he is alive again, I can put my trust in Jesus. I want to put my trust in Jesus. Faith is reasonable. The second thing is, as you see on the green sheets, it's understandable, verses 9 to 12. Now, verses 9 to 12 look back a couple of chapters. They look back to um, chapter 14, the feeding of the 5,000, and then chapter 15 and the feeding of the 4,000. Why did it happen twice? I mean, the numbers weren't exactly the same, but it was the same miracle, wasn't it? Why did it happen twice? It happened twice because Jesus repeats it. Because he had to. It happened twice because Jesus needed to repeat it for the disciples. They've been in the front row. They've been giving out the bread on both those occasions. And where do you think that miracle was happening precisely? It was happening right in front of the disciples' eyes, at their fingertips, as they were giving out the bread. There wasn't enough to go round, but it kept on coming, didn't it? as they were distributed, as they were taking it around to people and so on. The disciples were in the front row, and yet they still don't get it. They still don't understand that here is the Creator here with us. And Jesus is saying, you really should be catching on to this by now, as to who I am. And in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9, do you still not understand? Jesus clearly is expecting them to understand the Creator's here, God in the flesh. That's not a kind of nasty rebuke. It's not, oh, so on. But he's, it's like that of a, of a, of a loving mum and dad. They're Jesus' apprentices, aren't they? And yet faith seems to be dawning so slowly. He expects them, he wants them to understand who he is 
and then to put their faith in him. And he expects it because the Christian faith is not just some kind of vague, great mystery and so on, but it's understandable by anyone. You read the gospel, you find out more about Jesus. You can read Christian books, maybe a bit more time over this summer. Next Sunday, I've just finished a, a book coming back from Romania. And uh, uh, actually, I finished a terrible book on coming back from Romania. That's another story. And, uh, but then I read another one, almost got through that on, on the way back. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a biography of people who went to North Africa with the gospel. And it's a book that co- that's called this. It's a great title. It's called, We Died Before We Came Here. I'm going to get some in from uh, Books Live, and we'll be, uh, they'll be on sale next Sunday. I'll do a proper review then. Before I became a Christian as a teenager, I was completely ignorant. If you'd asked me as a 13-year-old, I knew nothing about Christianity as a 13-year-old. Absolutely zilch. Nothing. And then a friend of mine invited me along to his youth group, started going along, and they were teaching the Bible, and I began to learn, I began to grow, and I began to see, and I began to understand and on the 18th of April, 1974, I had a conversation with the, the curate, who was the leader of our youth group on the back of a boat on the Norfolk Broads youth group holiday. And, uh, and it was at that conversation, I, I know for sure, from then onwards, I had taken that step of faith, based on the teaching and the understanding that I'd been receiving over probably three or four years in the youth group before that. Faith is understandable. You can understand it. But understanding is not enough. Understanding, knowing about it in your brain, doesn't get you to heaven. We have to act. Understanding the gospel and being a Christian are completely different things, aren't they? You've got to take that step. A Christian is someone who's got some understanding. You don't have to have much. I mean, please, no one here doesn't know enough. No one here doesn't know enough, I'm sure. Okay? To make that step, to take that step of faith. For me, well, I know that it was sometime before the 18th of April, 1974. But for you today, it could be the same. You know, maybe you've been coming along for a while and so on, or maybe over the years you've been thinking, but actually you've never said clearly, this is, this is for me. And it could be that today, 30th of July, 2017, and it's... Uh, about 10 to 11 at the moment, you could be saying, that's the time when I said to Jesus, right now, I believe, I trust, and put my hand in yours for time and for eternity. Yeah, I may well have been doing so for a few months or maybe a few years now, but now's the time I'm really acknowledging it with you, maybe for the first time. So it's reasonable, It's understandable. Uh, Point three, it's probably not a word, is it? But uh, it's disturbable. You know what I mean? It's possible to disturb faith. (coughs) Excuse me. So have a look at verse six and have a look at verse 12. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your, Jesus said to his disciples, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in verse 12, then they understood he wasn't, telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, teaching there is singular. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were were teaching very different things. 
Uh, But neither of them taught the truth about Jesus, the truth about the gospel. And so Jesus is warning against their teaching. Any teaching which actually isn't focusing and saying, you need to know about Jesus, you need to understand about Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus died for us. Jesus is alive today. And just as a teaspoon of yeast is sufficient in my bread maker, our bread maker, to, uh, uh, to produce a decent loaf of bread, so bad teaching will also go a long way. That's why he calls it yeast. Bad teaching can infect a whole church. Bad teaching can infect a whole generation. And Jesus said, you've got to be very careful what you get taught. So he says in verse 6 there, you need to guard against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and the, the thing is, you see, bad Christian teaching can wreak havoc with your faith. Someone said this, she who loses money loses much. She who loses a friend loses more. She who loses faith loses all. And bad teaching, got to say, bad teaching can make you lose everything. And we need to recognize that Jesus says, I want your faith, but you've got to be careful because faith is disturbable. From time to time, people move away from Hove. You know, we have a job or we need to go and live in their family or whatever it would be. Can I tell you, I cannot fathom why on earth someone who is a Christian would choose their house before they chose their church? So what happens is you move away and you go to a lovely place and you find a fantastic house and then you think, actually there isn't a decent Bible teaching church within 30 miles. I'll go to the local village one instead. And what happens? Your faith just begins to shrivel. In a previous job, uh, we had to move from Tunbridge Wells up to the Midlands. And what we did, we, we went up and we looked and we found two churches that would have been very happy. We'd love to have been at either of these churches. One was in the village, one was in the town. And, uh, uh, and then we just simply prayed, Lord, both of those churches uh, would be great. We could really thrive and serve and learn and grow there. And uh, when it comes to buying a house and so on, uh, please would you overrule and just uh, get us a house where... Uh, you want us to be. We chose the church, well, two churches, then we committed to the Lord, and actually we end up living in a lovely, delightful village called Bishop Sushington, and you think cricket on the village green and so on. Lovely. It's actually built around an old cement works. But that church was great, and the teaching there was great, and we learned things every week. And I told the vicar that, and he couldn't quite believe it. I said, Bob, you're a great preacher. You teach us new things every week. I learn stuff from you. It's doing my faith good to be here. That's what you need. All from time to time, people decide to move church within Brighton and Hove. And people said to me, uh, you know, people have said to me things like X, Y, Z church. Well, I like the style of the service or the music or the minister. So nice. But the teaching is a bit unorthodox. And Jesus said, be careful. Be careful. He says, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Listen to Jesus. 
why on earth would you want to go to a church where the teaching's a bit thin or a bit unorthodox? Remember, your faith is disturbable. And if you lose your faith, you lose everything. And then the final point. What does Jesus want? He wants our faith. It's reasonable, it's understandable, it's disturbable. And it's faith. Look at verse 8 again. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? And it's just a gentle rebuke of a, a loving parent rather than an angry teacher or a drill sergeant or someone. But it's a key verse. They should be twigging by now who Jesus is. He wants them to put their faith in him. And we need to, at the start of our lives as Christians, start of our Christian lives, but actually every day, every day in particular situations in our lives, uh, we want to uh, uh, get in and put our faith into practice. Reminds me actually of, a, of an Irishman who uh, refused to get into the uh, water until he'd first learned to swim. You can't do it, can you? Got to get in there. You got to take that step of faith. So, for example, it's school holidays. Great time, school holidays, isn't it? You've got the kids home, uh, but it can also be a challenge, can't it? So maybe you'd be praying tomorrow morning, Lord uh, Jesus, please help me today. I need patience, I need love and kindness uh, towards my children today. I want the fruit of the Spirit to be growing in my life towards my kids. Please, Lord, would you grow those things in me today? And I trust you, you'll help me to do that. That is a step of faith tomorrow morning. Or uh, here I am in the queue of coffee for coffee after the church uh, this morning. And to be honest, I really don't like the person in front of me. It happens. <laughs> and uh, please, or would you help me to smile? Would you help me to uh, love them? Would you help me to take an interest in them? Would you help me to pray for them this week? And please help me to talk to them next week as well. Prayer might become a habit. Step of faith. Or another example, I was talking to a vicar friend of mine this week. And uh, uh, he was telling me about how some new people were coming to his church. And they, uh, they, couldn't, um, they couldn't really get their, their minds around how the fact that their church has got a number of staff and they've got a, build, a big building project and so on. And uh, uh, they couldn't get their minds around when the fact was, so where's all the money from come from? And my friend just said, well, it, it's people give. They give. And these, the, this, uh, these new folks, uh, two or three of them, they just thought it was wonderful. And they couldn't quite get their minds around it, but people would be just quite so generous. And maybe for you, you know, the building hall of the, uh, in the church hall starts a week tomorrow. And the giving for that has been simply amazing too. And perhaps you may have been felt challenged by the generosity of those things next door to you, behind you, in front of you. And uh, maybe you thought of joining the giving revolution at this church. But then you thought, we wouldn't survive financially. Well, Anna and I, uh, you know, frequently or regularly have uh, thought, oh dear, uh, you know, if we're signing this check and, uh, uh, and sending it into something or other, then uh, that's, uh, can't see our ends are quite going to meet. It would be a struggle. Never once has it been. God is no man's debtor. And, uh, uh, 
And I just want to encourage you. A step of faith says, I'm going to do what I feel to be right and trust God. That's a step of faith. And Jesus wants our faith. Uh, most of all, he wants us to remember his death and his resurrection, the sign of Jonah. And whether it's for the first time ever today, or whether it's just inking in something you've been, been believing for years and years, when are we today put our faith in Jesus afresh or for the first time. There's no time like today. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that the Christian faith is reasonable. We have our sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of the first Easter weekend. We can understand. We know faith can be disturbed by people with their bad and frankly wrong teaching. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to put our faith in you. Lord, there'll be things this week, I'm sure, for all of us, where our faith will be tested. Pray you'd help us to trust you to live the lives that you want us to this week. And Lord, as we, uh, perhaps we might look back many years to the day when we first put our trust in you, and we praise you and thank you that you helped us to do that. And we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, if maybe today is a time when we want to say, yep, I am believing, that we'd make a mental note of that and tell someone. And we pray, Lord, you'd help us to follow you, to put our hand in yours, to be your disciples day by day, for your namesake. Amen.